You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Hospital. And I want to start out by saying a huge thank you to all of our dedicated listeners. And of course, I want to thank the Global Autoimmune Institute for their ongoing support to make this podcast possible. Today's topic is about the recent doggy bag study published in the journal Gastroenterology that suggests that a truly gluten-free diet may be more aspirational than achievable. We talk a lot about strict gluten-free diets, but this study points out that even at our strictest, we may still be exposed to gluten. To help us better understand why this is and what it means for the future of patients with celiac disease, I have Dr. Jocelyn Sylvester from Boston Children's Hospital in the studio with me. Dr. Sylvester is the lead researcher on this study and one of our favorite podcast guests. Welcome, Dr. Sylvester. Thank you. It's great to be back. So to start out, let's talk about the name of this study. How did you come up with the name, the doggy bag study? Well, this was actually one of the most important aspects of the study early on. And the concept here is that Doggy bags are what one takes home from the restaurant when they don't finish their meal and they're going to feed it to the dog. Now, it actually ended up being more apt than we initially thought because in more modern times, doggy bag is what you use to pick after your pooch when you go to the park. So (laughs) we called this the doggy bag study, but we needed an acronym. So it's actually the determination of gluten grams ingested and excreted by adults eating gluten-free study. That is a mouthful. (laughs) That's why we call it doggy bag. So tell us some of the basics of the study. What did it entail and why such an ominous takeaway that the gluten-free diet may be more aspirational than achievable? Well, this is a study that we've been wanting to do for a long time. And I think it's important to say from the outset that we are not surprised by the results. And so essentially what we tried to do here was take advantage of new tools that give us the ability to look for gluten not only in food, but also in stool and urine. And these tools are based on antibodies that are really specific for, I think you've talked on it, about it on your podcast before, this 33-mer, which is this particular amino acid sequence in gluten that is particularly able to stimulate the immune system in people with celiac disease. So these tests that we're using detect this peptide, in, which is called a gluten-immunogenic peptide, in stool, urine, and food. And so what we did for the study is we asked some of our adults with celiac disease who've been on a gluten-free diet for two years to collect food, stool, and urine samples over a 10-day period, and then we tested all of those for gluten. And what about the food that they eat? Did they have to bring it to you? Yes. So we asked people to give us a quarter of everything they ate. And this was not give us a quarter of the cake and you can have all the icing. It was we want you to give us proportionate to what you ate. So a quarter of your vegetables, a quarter of your steak, a quarter of your potatoes. And this was for every meal and snacks for seven days. Now, when we did this study, one of the things we really had no idea of was how much gluten we were going to find. So when we wanted all the food, we were worried if we took all the food that we would be diluting out the gluten by checking for gluten in a lot of steamed broccoli that probably doesn't have gluten in it. So we had some very specific recommendations about foods not to give us. And so, for instance, if a patient ate an apple or a banana, we didn't ask for a quarter of the apple or a banana because we thought we were fairly safe assuming that that was going to be gluten-free. If they had a mixed beverage at Starbucks or another coffee place, we asked them to bring that. If they had tea made from a bag at home or filtered coffee at home, then they could not give us that. 
So how did they do all of this? I have these visions in my head of like Chinese takeout boxes coming into your clinic. How did they bring you the food samples? So we provided the participants with doggy bags, actually, um, which were not like the ones you use for your dog. These were actually Ziploc bags. And so they put their food in and then wrote down the day and the time. And then they also kept a diary of what they ate so we could match them up. And then we gave them containers for urine. And then we had actually this really cool stool collection system. So what it was, was it was kind of like a large, like margarine container. And that had a plastic frame. So you could actually sit it over the toilet in between like the seat and the top of the toilet. So you weren't sitting on it. And then it could collect the stool and they could put the lid on and they didn't even have to touch the poop. You know, you're talking to a gastroenterologist when they refer to a stool collection device as cool. Well, you know, we asked a lot of people to bring us a lot of poop, and there's nice and less nice ways to collect a stool sample. That's for sure. Well, I'm glad that your participants had a cool way in which to do it. So did you instruct the participants on how to eat or where to eat? Were they supposed to go to restaurants a certain number of nights or just eat at home? How did, what did you tell them to do? So we specifically asked participants not to change their usual dietary habits, and we encouraged them to go to restaurants, knowing that food is expensive. We also gave them a small stipend every day to help defray the cost of the fact that they were going to have to buy extra food because we were taking a quarter of it. Um, that being said, interestingly, many of the participants chose to do the study over a holiday period. Uh, and so these participants often were at house parties or at restaurants or at other social events when they were in the study, which actually turned out to be very convenient from a study point of view. So we had a good mix of meals made at home from scratch Meals made at home from gluten-free mixes, meals made by other people, restaurant meals, both formal dining and fast food. So tell us some of the things you found. Did they keep gluten out or did you find gluten in the pee and poop? So we tested nearly a thousand samples of food, stool, and urine, and we found less than a hundred that were positive. But of the 18 folks we had with celiac disease, 12 of them had at least one positive sample, and we only looked for 10 days. So this suggests that many people on a gluten-free diet, and you can't see my air quotes online, (laughs) but I can tell you that I'm using the term gluten-free, recognizing that gluten-free doesn't mean zero gluten or 100% free from gluten. Um, And so definitely we were finding gluten. Did any of the patients who you found gluten in their urine or stool say that they had symptoms that correlated with the exposure? So that's a good question. And we do have some data on whether or not participants had symptoms and whether or not that correlated with when we found stool in urine, but we actually haven't really evaluated and published those results yet. So your study talked about the possibility that 20 parts per million might not be low enough to completely heal the gut. Do you think that the FDA needs to revisit this standard for safety of gluten-free products? So I think what we tried to say was that 20 parts per million doesn't mean zero gluten. So even if one were to eat exclusively gluten-free labeled foods, they could likely be getting gluten. Now, where does the gluten actually come in? We didn't actually test that in our study, but since many things tested more than 20 parts per million, it suggests that there was some other source of gluten and it wasn't truly products that would have met the threshold for gluten-free. One of the things that was interesting is that many uh, participants had commented that somebody else had told them that something was gluten-free. And I think this highlights one of the real problems with the gluten-free diet, which is that 
as somebody who's trying to eat gluten-free, it's not really possible to control what one eats. And I think this is really the take-home message from the study that it's not reasonable to ask people to ensure that what they're eating doesn't have gluten in it because even, folk, even people who are trying to eliminate peanut from their diet occasionally will enter circumstances where they will be told something doesn't have peanuts in it when it actually does. And I think that the general understanding of peanuts is much better because peanuts are much less complicated than gluten. So maybe this should have been the first question I asked you, but how much gluten were these individuals actually eating? Because you're not talking about 20 parts per million or 25 parts per million in their urine or stool. How much gluten are you actually finding? Yes, and that's a very important point. So we didn't attempt to extrapolate and try and calculate based on any positive urine or stool samples how much gluten was in the corresponding food. When we looked at the food samples that had gluten in them, the concentrations of gluten were, the, the middle concentration was just shy of 20 parts per million. So most of the ones that tested positive were under 20 parts per million. So how much gluten do you have to eat in order for the urine or stool to come back positive? So that's a good question, and I think that that's probably something that will vary a little bit between individuals. And if you think of it on a really simple matter, if you're somebody who drinks a lot of water, then your urine's more dilute. And so you'll have a lower concentration, even if you eat and absorb the same amount of gluten. Um, when studies have been done to look at this question, the thought has been that the threshold is somewhere around 50 milligrams. And what does that mean to somebody who monitors gluten in parts per million? So I think that's a really important question because parts per million is a concentration and not an amount. So if you have one M&M that contains 20 parts per million, that's much less gluten than if you have a hundred M&Ms that contain one part per million. And so I think it's really important to remember that when we talk about concentrations, we're really only getting part of the picture. It's a great way to put it. So these findings really scream that we need a better treatment for celiac disease, that even people who think that they are doing a great job with a gluten-free diet are still being exposed. Do you think that it's impossible to be adherent to the gluten-free diet and that a medication is really the only long-term solution for people with celiac? So I think if we unpack that question, there's actually a couple questions embedded in there. So I think really what we don't know and what we really need to research more is what is a good enough gluten-free diet? Because I think it's really important to stress that these are individuals who, as you said, were trying to follow a gluten-free diet, thought they were following a gluten-free diet, and generally felt well. And so if there's a small amount of gluten getting in, it doesn't matter. And I think the answer is we really don't know. And what's interesting is even when we look at large population studies, we don't have good data on what the long-term consequences of having ongoing short maybe not fully healed uh, villi is when you drastically reduce your gluten. And so I think it's really an open question whether or not a gluten-free diet is sufficient. I think that knowing how many people with celiac disease are thriving on a gluten-free diet, which probably contains low levels of gluten, it would be hard to say that the gluten-free diet is entirely a failure. But I also think that we have to remember that a lot of the damage of a gluten-free diet is not related to gluten. It's related to just how difficult it is and how socially isolating it can be and how it can really be anxiety-provoking to try and avoid every last bit of gluten. So I think, do we need a treatment alternative to gluten-free diet? Absolutely. Just because a gluten-free diet is maybe not practical 
And the more we learn about how difficult it actually is, not only to try and follow it, but to actually successfully eliminate the gluten, I think it becomes more apparent that for many people, having a drug as an alternative to a gluten-free diet would be something that would improve their quality of life. And ultimately, as a physician, and not just as a researcher, my goal is to make my patients' lives better. We know that there's a lot of anxiety and hypervigilance in our celiac community, and these results are telling us that people who think they're being very gluten-free are still being exposed to gluten. How do you counsel patients who come to you and ask about these findings and say, am I still getting gluten? Are people asking for you to be testing their urine and stool, or what, what are you saying? So I do have some patients who use the urine and stool tests because they are available commercially direct to patients. I tell my patients that really what I'm looking for is that they physically feel well. I am a pediatrician, so if my patients aren't growing, that's a tremendous problem. Or if they're anemic, which suggests that they might not be absorbing iron in that very first part of the small intestine very well, that's another sign. So I generally evaluate my patients holistically. Since, as I said earlier, we don't have great data that knowing that your villi are as tall or nearly as tall as, quote, normal villi is important. I don't recommend that we re-biopsy them, particularly because I might not be helping, but I think I'm certainly harming if I ask a patient who's feeling well and doing their best to follow a gluten-free diet and not eating gluten intentionally to become more neurotic about their diet. So what do you think is the future? Do you think that this study and others um, will help us support the need for a treatment and that we'll get ongoing funding and more results to show why we really need a treatment? So I'm hopeful that this study will help to make the point that perhaps part of the reason why when we look at patients with celiac disease, particularly in adults, their villi are not the same height as those who don't have celiac disease that maybe there's low levels of gluten contamination in a gluten-free diet that are just essentially impossible to eliminate. And I think it's really important to emphasize that this is not the fault of the patient. This is the fault of the gluten-free diet, which is, by definition, can contain up to 20 parts per million gluten and also just extraordinarily difficult to follow because gluten is everywhere. So if we keep that in mind, then I think it really leads to the conclusion that treatments other than a gluten-free diet could potentially be superior to a gluten-free diet, particularly if your outcome is having a normal villus. There are a lot of treatments that are under development for celiac today. Would any of them that are being studied help close this gap? So that's a very interesting question, and I think the treatments that are being studied fall generally into two broad categories. One category is treatments that would likely be something that you take while trying to follow a gluten-free diet, such as an enzyme that might digest these low levels of gluten. And so I think this study is important because it helps us get a sense of what's the pattern and how often are patients who are trying to follow a gluten-free diet getting gluten. There's another class of therapies which are actually directed towards trying to reprogram the immune system so that instead of attacking when it sees gluten, it tolerates gluten, just like the immune system can tolerate eggs and milk and other foods. And so I think those treatments as potentially an alternative to the gluten-free diet would fit into the treatment plan in a different place, but I think there's definitely a place for both types of treatment and the management of celiac disease. We can do better than a not-so-gluten-free diet. 
Well said. <laughs> well, that is all the time that we have for today. I want to thank Dr. Sylvester so much for having this interesting discussion with us. And we can't wait to hear more about what you're going to do to help us look closer at our gluten-free diets. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to talk to your listeners about gluten-free diets and the limits of gluten-free diets. Well, thanks to everybody for tuning in today. And we will talk to you again next time. Bye.